This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting show on AFN. I'm Armin Brat. There are things about divorce that you cannot possibly know if you're not a divorce attorney or involved in the divorce industry somehow. These are things that your divorce attorney, your friends, your family might never tell you or even know that they should be telling you. These are things that could make a profound difference in your life both during and after your divorce. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about exactly those things with a divorce attorney who's got decades of experience. She has seen firsthand how divorces can go terribly, terribly wrong and how they can go surprisingly right. She knows how people's words and attitudes and behaviors can impact the divorce process itself and their lives after the divorce. And she's written a book called The Wiser Divorce, which is about strategies, everything from how to talk to your children about the divorce to finding the right attorney to how to keep judges and courts from controlling too much of your destiny. The Wiser Divorce is really an attitude shift, and it's changing your focus so that you look at the divorce as a pathway to your new life. You'll be able to use the divorce as an opportunity to transform yourself and your future, and it can become a way to heal a family that is really and truly broken. It can also free you up to discover the best life that awaits you. We'll start talking about the wiser divorce when Positive Parenting continues when we get back. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called Hands Only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. For more information on this latest method of CPR, visit handsonlycpr.org today. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Angie Hallier, who is the author of The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life. Angie, nice to have you. Thanks for joining us. Armin, great to be with you. Let's start off by talking about the term wiser divorce. It seems like the word wise and divorce really don't go together too terribly well. What do you think? What is a wise divorce? Well, unfortunately, it happens to many people. Oh, yeah. And and, and even the statistics and the estimates are that one out of every two children born last year will experience their children's divorce by the time they're 18. So being wise about your divorce is about being strategic, and it's about going through it with the minimal of negative emotion um, and really making decisions that are future-focused. And is that something that you're going to be making decisions on your own, or are we talking about a, a collaborative type of approach? Well, most people end up having an attorney, so a lot of times this is done in connection with your attorney, but there's great methods for divorcing that people use now, including mediation and including collaborative divorce, because really the goal is to stay out of court, save your money, save those negative emotions, and move forward with a positive plan. 
You know, you mentioned statistics, and certainly the the statistics about the number of divorces is are it's pretty grim stuff. But I think another there's it's not exactly statistics. It's maybe the the conventional wisdom tells you that divorces are always battles and there's all these horrible things that are going on. And certainly those are the ones that make the papers and that you hear more about, but not that many are, right? I mean, most mm-hmm. most divorces manage to get settled in a, in a non-confrontational, non-horrible kind of way. Most cases settle out of court, but unfortunately that doesn't mean there's not a battle going on. And, you know, our society still seems to look at divorce like it did in the 1940s. And it's taboo, and it's this thing that's whispered about and gossiped about, and there has to be a winner and a loser. And that's really what needs to change. People need to look at this as a life transition, just like any other, and move through it really aware and focused on how to do it without that angst. One of the things you talk about is getting rid of ugliness. And I I like the way that you put it, that ugliness can, can last long after the marriage is over. I remember talking with somebody years ago about divorce, and he said that there's a something that is very common, which he called negative intimacy, which is that people just, they, they hate each other so much that they constantly become or remain a part of each other's lives for the sole purpose, pretty much, of antagonizing the other person, it, which seems just completely ridiculous, but that is something that happens. It's so unfortunate because, really, people do sometimes let a divorce scar the rest of their life. And I see that most often with people who don't really work their divorce. They think, you know, whether they wanted it or not, this horrible thing is happening. It has to be a win or lose. And they don't do that work on themselves to really accept what's happening, accept the good and the bad in the marriage, admit their own role in the marriage, and then really plan what their future is going to be and look at what their goals are. What things did they lose during the marriage? What can they regain? And how can they recreate a great life? Those are the people who move on well. So people who have been around long enough to remember the days before no-fault divorce would remember things like you, know, you had to prove something. You had to prove alienation of affection. Somebody's having an affair or you have to prove being abandoned. And, and now you, you don't have to prove anything. Do you think that that has really changed and made divorce something that people do really willy-nilly, that that they are not putting enough thought into it? I think so. You know, you can see it just by the statistics. I think that it's easy to get. People don't maybe work on their marriages as they did in the past, but also, on the other hand, I think people get out of unhappy marriages much more frequently. So there's no way to judge how many of the marriages in the past were happy or not that stayed together. But there is some sense that people really look at their own self-satisfaction and happiness now as something that's really important, and they don't stay in a marriage just to stay in a marriage. The whole process of getting a divorce, it seems, starts long before the actual divorce itself gets going. How do you suggest that people who are kind of heading in that direction prepare themselves, get started, get ready for the whole thing? First, empower yourself with knowledge. You know, I see a lot of people come into me who just want some information in the event they get divorced because getting that knowledge, getting that information sometimes helps you make that decision. And then don't wait so long that you've done something horrible in the marriage. You know, sometimes I think, for instance, those that have affairs, it's it's rather cowardly because if you're so unhappy with your marriage, you don't want to be with that person, you want to be with someone else, then be mature enough to not stay in a bad marriage you know you want out of 
way too long because then it's even tougher when the divorce process starts. Uh, divorce process starts. But some of those things, I mean, affairs are quite frequently not just about the affair; they're about causing the other person really pain. It, it is, and what kind of person do you want to be? I ask people this, you know, do you want to bring your best self to your marriage and your divorce or your worst self? And when you do those things during the marriage that are so harmful to your spouse, openly harmful, it makes it a lot harder to go through the divorce process in a positive way. So if you're thinking about divorce, start educating yourself, learning, and and really take a good look at, at what it is you want, and can the marriage be saved? Because a lot of marriages can be saved if they're worked on. And how do you begin to assess that? Is that something that you, you're suggesting that everybody should go to couples counseling? Or, I mean, how, uh, how do people, because yeah. I think a lot of people are, are just kind of almost religiously against any kind of third parties coming in to mess around with the marriage. And when they are that against a third party getting involved, those are the most likely marriages to end in divorce because really you do need a third person when you're dealing with something as emotional and volatile as a marriage that feels like it's falling apart. So I think couples counseling is fantastic. And, you know, if one person wants to go and the other doesn't, then go by yourself because you'll gain clarity. And even the marriages, the people that are married and go to counseling, even if their marriage ends in a divorce, through the counseling process, I find that their divorces go much smoother. And one of the words that comes up a lot in divorces or any kind of breakup for that matter, in fact, pretty much any living room, is the word fair. And that word gets lost, I think, quite a bit in divorce between, again, the kind of the vindictiveness that there is or the feeling that, that you've been harmed somehow so the other person owes you something. How do you keep an eye on fair and make sure that that stays front and center? Well, you know, in the law, there's no such thing as fair, but uh, people have an innate sense between themselves many times about what is fair. So first I tell people, you need to think about not what you want, what you want to win. You need to think about what you can live with, because not everything is worth dying on the sword for. So that's the first thing you need to do is, is generally look at what you can live with. And then really think of your divorce as a series of board meetings. You have to think of this as a business because these decisions will be profoundly impacting the rest of your life. Approach it as if this was your business. You're going to have the business ending. And how can both partners in this business move on? You've got a little chart here about 10 top 10 lies that divorcing people tell themselves. I think some of these are really, really interesting, that justice will be served if I go to court, that the judge will fix everything, that I won't have to give up anything that matters to me. Talk about how you happen to put that particular list together. I think that people going through a divorce have these myths in their head about what will happen, and it starts with that basic thing we talked about, that somebody is right and somebody is wrong. And by God, if I don't get what I want in the settlement process, I know a judge out there will see it my way. Those are the people that haven't admitted their own role in the demise of the marriage, even if it just was you stayed too long in an unhappy household, even if you think it was the other person's fault. So I drew that from really my 25 years of being a divorce attorney and seeing the myths that people tell themselves that get them in the most trouble. How do you go about finding the right attorney? I tell people, interview a few attorneys, because 
someone who may have been the right attorney for your friend or another family member may not be the right attorney for you. So you interview a few people. Talk to them about how they bill, how they communicate with you. Help Talk to them about what your goals are. You should leave your initial meeting with your attorney feeling like someone has your back. It needs to be personality match. It needs to be approach match. And you need to feel, okay, I've got my strategic ally in this. If you go to someone who says, yep, we're going to get him or her talking about your ex-spouse and seems to be that, that pound the drums, warmonger type, stay away from them. But what if you're feeling that way, <laughs> feeling that that's what you want? You are going to feel that way. And that's why it's important to be strategic because when you just rely on your emotions as you approach this, you get in big trouble. And, and the money that is spent when emotions rule the divorce is incredible. And really what you want, you want to save the most money you can to enter that next phase of your life. So you have to surround yourself also with people who aren't going to reinforce that with you. Know, with you. You have to really look at it as this is a strategic business decision, and no matter how I feel, I'm going to put those emotions in one room and sit in the divorce room with the attorney. I'm talking with Angie Hallier, who's the author of The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Angie about wise divorces. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Angie Hallier, who's the author of The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life. And before the break, we were just talking about different types of attorneys. And I want to ask you to talk about something we mentioned at the very beginning of the show about collaborative divorce, which is a whole other approach where it's, it's not as confrontational and there, there's a lot more working together. Can you walk us through a little bit how collaborative divorce as a concept works differently than sort of having your own lawyer that are that going to be beating each other's heads? Yes, and collaborative divorces are the most satisfying divorces I'm involved in, and I think for the participants, too. And the studies show that people don't go back to court as often once they've done this. So each person in the divorce has their own divorce coach. They each have their own attorney. And then if they have children, there's one child specialist, and then there's a financial specialist. So initially, the attorneys aren't even involved. The, the individuals meet with their coaches separately and then together and set, set joint intentions for their divorce and also list all the questions they want answered before they move forward. And then they meet separately with the financial advisor and give him or her all their financial information so that... People can start looking at what there is to divide and how they will move forward. Then a series of meetings starts with the whole team in the room, and we start walking through the issues one by one and brainstorming every possible idea or outcome for each issue. And once the favorite of those outcomes have been voted on by the participants, then the financial advisor puts together what this will look like financially in the future and the child specialist will put together the parenting plan. And really, they are less expensive overall, even though it may not sound like it, with that many people involved, and they are much shorter. And it is such a great way to move on with a hug and a smile at the end of it with everyone. 
And does it usually work out that way, though? It does. They are so successful. I mean, the rate of success is like 95% in, in collaborative divorces. Do collaborative divorces sometimes end in dropping the whole thing and just getting back together? It sounds like if everybody's working together so carefully and so so civilly that maybe they would discover, eh, you know what, maybe we should give this another shot. That does happen sometimes. And sometimes it's just that the people who choose collaborative are more evolved about how they're going to get divorced and have made that decision. But they really are successful, and there's great incentive to stay in the process because one of the commitments that's made at the outset is that if either uh, – of the divorcing spouses want, decides to drop collaborative and go to court, they cannot use anybody on the team to move forward. They can't use the documents that were produced. They have to start from scratch. So there's powerful incentive to stay with this process. And it, it lends itself to great creativity yeah. in the way you finalize things. That's not available when you go to a judge. Is that legal to do that? I mean, to say that you can't use the documents that were prepared? Yes. Yep. Wow. Absolutely is. I mean, you it just somehow doesn't sound like it should be. In things like that, but that is the incentive to stay in it. And what percentage of your practice is like that? You know, only about 10%. Um, some states, I'm in Arizona, some states use it much more, some not at all. Um, it really is growing. And, you know, there's just some old dog attorneys, I guess I'd call them, that don't like to learn new tricks. So it, it's it's hard to get people to switch their mindset, even attorneys, from the litigation model to the collaborative model. You know, one of the hardest parts of this whole thing is <clears throat> is about the kids. I think people can be very understanding and at least tolerant of, okay, fine, we can't get along. We're going to have to end this thing. But they may have very different approaches to parenting. They may have different futures that they envision for the kids, different religious upbringings or, or a variety of different things that, that can bring up a whole other area of incivility and nastiness and disagreements. How do you talk to your clients who are heading down that road, that they're, they're getting ready to do something that would be damaging to the child? Well, they have to remember that what happens to the children as you divorce can absolutely traumatize them as adults. You know, you wouldn't want someone to stab your child. You could see that wound. But people do things in their divorces that really cause these emotional wounds later. So you have to just vehemently put your children first. You can't focus on how your divorce is affecting you. It has to be about minimizing the impact to the children. The number one thing and the most common thing people do is talk bad about the other parent in front of the children or let someone else do that. Well, that's the number one thing not to do. And that's pretty easy. You just have to self-monitor. I think it's easy, but it's not easy. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these maybe things that are simple but not easy. That it, you know, yes, you can say that, don't talk bad, but I think that's probably because it's the number one thing people do. It's, it's the number, the, the easiest thing to do. Well, you know, it just to get these little subtle digs in there that you really are talking to the child. You said it very well, and that's why I say to people, you have to envision that your words are knives, and you are wounding your children. If you can, every time you're about to say something, think, oh, my God, I'm hurting my child if I say this, that can help you stop. And it is tough because your own role as a parent is changing. How you knew your life to be in your relationship with your children is changing. But if you love the children and you really want to put them first, and people say that, it's easy to say that, 
but they don't always do it. If that's really what you want, you have to show your children you're still a family, just a family that looks differently. And get couples counseling or co-parenting counseling or communication counseling with your soon-to-be ex to make sure that happens for your kids. Do you counsel people who don't really, they don't understand or they, they don't respect the importance of the other parent in the child's life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we all know how important it is as an adult to have had the love and the input and the attention of both of your parents in your life. I tell people, I'll give people studies to read, books to read. It's so important. It's, you know, with the number of children who are experiencing divorces, this is an epidemic. And we're going to have so many children who aren't well-functioning in adulthood if parents don't start to look at the divorce split differently for them. One of the things I remember from my divorce, probably I think was maybe the most painful part of the whole thing, was that there was this expectation, it seemed like, that people were going to choose sides, I mean, friends and family. And I never had that expectation. It did seem to me to be a completely stupid thing to do. But I think a lot of, of friends felt that they needed to choose a side. How do you help with that? I mean, as, as an attorney or just any, as anybody, I mean, because that's something that you really can't affect, but that's something that can have a really incredibly important and incredibly profound effect on the people involved. Right. People love to circle the wagons, right? And it's so you just want to be the one who's right because you don't want to be the one who's wrong. I tell people one of the things they can do is write scripts. So be prepared if someone's going to ask you about your divorce. Have a statement, and hopefully your soon-to-be ex will, too, that something like, you know, Bob and I have decided to get divorced, and it's hard for both of us, but we're committed to our children, and we're going to make them whole. You stop the gossip. You stop the bad-mouthing. Stop it right there, because when you start to speak like that, also, you will start to feel like that. How does that work? Well, you just, you know, you get ready to say what you're going to say. You have your little script about how you're going to portray your divorce to the world. You know, I I think of celebrities sometimes. You know, most celebrities get divorced, and we don't hear all the nitty-gritty details. Sure, a few of them, but why is that? Because they have these reputations to protect. They themselves are money makers or they're actors, and, you know, they're a brand, and they have to protect it. Think of yourself like that because – At the end of the day, if you are rallying the troops, they're going to get sick of talking to you anyhow about your divorce. (laughs) Start to think of your own reputation in the future. How do you want to come out of this? So think about it, write it down, and stick to your script. Do you suggest that people start dating before the divorce has been finalized, or should they hold off on that? You know, I'm not so much about whether you date or not, but if you have children, keep them away from it. That, that's where it really comes back to bite you. Children still want to know how important you are to them, and, and they want your time, especially after a divorce. You might be done mourning the end of your marriage, but they're not done mourning the end of their family. So if you're going to date, you know, keep it away from the kids, and the, uh, at least for six months or a year or more. The other thing it does is if you have an amicable divorce going on, even though the other person might be okay with the divorce, if they find out you're replacing them before the divorce is done, it might really mess up the settlement negotiations. Angie Hallier is the author of The Wiser Divorce, Positive Strategies for Your Next Best Life. Angie, you have a website? 
AngieHallier.com. That's A-N-G-I-E-H-A-L-L-I-E-R.com. Excellent. Thank you very much. Great to have you. Thank you, Armin. Have a great day. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Log on to YouGottaBeKidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Don't be that guy. Log on to YouGottaBeKidding.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broadden. It's time for a Parents at Play segment. For a lot of kids and tweens and teens and, yes, let's face it, adults too, gaming is a part of life. It can be a great way to unwind by yourself or, better yet, to log some serious business parent-child bonding time. So this week, we want to take you through a couple of our new favorite gaming devices. The first one is the Wii U Mario Kart and Deluxe Set Bundle from Nintendo. Boy, there's a name for you. Do you own a Wii U yet? You know, if you don't, you're not going to find a much better way to get in than with this bundle. You get a whole ton of stuff. First of all, there's the Mario Kart 8 and the Nintendo Land games. There's also an MK8 steering wheel and, of course, the Deluxe 32GB Wii U console, complete with a Mario-themed red Wii remote, or we sometimes call it a Wiimote. The Wii U is Nintendo's sleek new console and has next-generation graphics that are incredible. They are comparable easily to the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Images and textures are sharp, the sound is clear, and the characters look like they're just about ready to hop right off the screen and join you on the couch. Speaking of screens, the Wii U GamePad controller with its 6.2-inch touchscreen is the star of the show. The GamePad has dual analog sticks, the usual buttons, the A, B, X, Y, Home, and Select, and more, as well as left and right trigger buttons, so you can use it to control the action on the TV screen or to access additional features like in-game maps. Oh, and you can also use it as a TV remote control. If you're just getting started, again, this bundle is a very good deal at just under $300. You're going to find it at your local retailers or Nintendo.com. Speaking of Nintendo, there's also the Super Smash Brothers. If you're not ready for the Wii U or you just prefer to play on the 3DS, Super Smash Brothers, that's your way to go. This fighting game has a host of Nintendo and non-Nintendo characters who face off in multi-person, last-man-standing kinds of battles. Each character has got different weapons and different speeds and different heights and weights and different ways of attacking that should make it pretty easy to decide who your favorite is and who your archenemy is, too. What's especially nice about Smash Brothers is that there are just a few buttons which makes it really easy for players, even complete novices, to master their character fairly quickly. Super Smash Brothers is for 3DS, and it's available right now for about 40 bucks from all your major retailers or on the 3DS eStore. If you're looking for something that's just a little bit less frenetic, you might want to take a look at the Pokemon Art Academy which is, as you can probably tell from the name, a Pokemon-themed version of Nintendo's highly successful Art Academy. This one includes 40 lessons that will have anyone and everyone painting and sketching and drawing the Pokemon characters you know and love. It starts with a stylus on the 3DS, but the Academy also introduces kids and their parents, of course, to an incredible variety of media, including paint and pastel and pen and pencil and a few others that don't start with P. 
It also teaches them a lot of the drawing and painting and art creation skills and techniques that they're going to be able to use in real life and that go far beyond Pokemon. Pokemon Art Academy is about 30 bucks, and you can download it digitally or you can buy a hard copy at your favorite retailer or on the Art Academy website, which is artacademy.nintendo.com slash Pokemon. You can find out more about these and plenty of other toys and games that are great for families to play together at parentsatplay.com. And another great source, particularly if you're looking for stuff for dads and kids to do together, is the MrDad.com seal of approval, which is MrDad.com slash seal. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or possibly an Ask Mr. Dad segment. But don't go quite yet because there's a lot more positive parenting straight ahead. And you're not going to want to miss any of it. I'm Armand Brott. More with Mr. Dad, Armand Brott, after this. From the MrDad.com radio network. notice when you have a baby everyone seems to give you advice from your mother-in-law don't you know you can't take that baby out in the rain today and where is her hat to your own parents you should take the baby outside every day even in the rain to your friends you have got to get this diaper cream it is so much better than the one you've been using when it comes to the important stuff like immunizations and protecting my baby's health I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, she gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. Honey, I totally support you getting the baby vaccinated, but really, shouldn't you put the baby's hat back on? A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. We all want our kids to be successful in life, don't we? But have you ever thought about why that is? One answer might be, so they'll do well in school. But then let's push on that one. Why do we want them to do well in school? So that they can go to a good college. Well, why? So they can get a good job. But why? So they can have money and own nice things and have a comfortable home. But let's again ask, why is that? Finally comes down to this. So they'll be happy. True success produces happiness. There are a lot of people out there who appear to be successful and they've earned degrees and they make a ton of money or they get all sorts of fame or they're in powerful positions. But you got to ask yourself, are they happy? If the answer is no, then they don't have true success, at least the definition of true success that I'm using. Success can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes, and it's not a matter of dumb luck. If you talk to parents of successful kids, you'll find that deep down they all have some things in common. And one of those commonalities is what we're going to be focusing on in this part of today's show, and that is letting the children fail. Not encouraging them to fail, but just letting them fall down. And like the old song goes, pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and start all over again. Now, of course, we're not just throwing them to the wolves. We'll be there. And we'll start talking about safety net parenting when positive parenting continues as soon as we get back. 
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. <laughs> oh, thank you. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Leon Scott Baxter, who's the author of Secrets of Safety Net Parenting, Raising Happy and Successful Children, the Common Denominator. Leon, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Armin. I appreciate being on your show again. It's been, a, been quite some time since the last time we talked. It has been a long time. It's about dating, as yeah. I recall. Yeah. Back in the day. Back Going from dating to parenting now, aren't we? Well, I guess I guess we've all matured it's <laughs> over the, over that time. So, you know, give us uh, the the ten thousand foot overview of safety net parenting, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of it. Well, safety net parenting is is a, a term that I've coined. You know, we've heard of um, uh, helicoptering and tiger tiger moms and, and snow plowing. Well, safety netting. Uh, takes a lot of different components, but I chose the term safety netting because one of the major components of safety net parents is that we prepare our children for, for let's talk about life as a, a tightrope walk, and we want them to be balanced, and we want them um, to have their footing, and we want them to find rhythm. So we prepare them for that, and we send them up the ladder of life, and then we let them, we let them start to Im- implement what we've taught them. And so and we, they may make a misstep, and they may make a, a mistake, and if they fall, we actually let them experience the discomfort of falling. But the safety net part comes in is, is because we don't, we don't let them crash. We're there to catch them at the bottom. Once we catch them, we dust them off. We talk about the missteps, how to rectify that, and we send them back up the ladder again. Okay. That seems pretty straightforward then. So that's, that's pretty much uh, we've been talking about that kind of thing quite a bit on the show, about the, the importance of skin knees and the importance of, of uh, making mistakes and learning that you can overcome mistakes but right right yeah. and there's and there's so you know and there's so many um, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a teacher also and I've seen so many parents who, who don't want to allow their children discomfort um, and they 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 want to make sure that they're there to protect them the entire way and, and of course we want to protect our kids that's 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 instinctual we want to make sure that um, they're they're safe but we also need to prepare them for life. Um, the interesting thing about Secrets of Safety Net Parenting is um, the idea behind the book itself was initially about raising successful children. And um, so I started doing some research, and, and, and I realized, I, I was thinking, well, success seems, so, seems kind of superficial. You know, why do we want our children to be successful? Why do we want them to do well in school. Well, because we want them to go to a good college. But why? So they can get a good career. So they can make a lot of money. So they can, but, but why? You know, why do we want them to be able to have a nice house and be able to care for their families? Because we initially, when it comes down to it, we want our children to be happy. And so um, happiness was a, was a big part of this, raising happy and successful children. There's a lot of uh, people, adults, children also, but adults who are who seem to be successful, but they're not necessarily happy. And um, 
so I wanted to make sure that we, we talked about happiness because I can't I don't see the definition of success at least from the parents' point of view success for our children without the de- a degree of happiness in there. And that would be happiness on the child's part, I guess, and the parents as well. Yeah, but especially for the parents. I mean, because I mean, especially from sorry for the um, for the children the because we when we say if we see it, if we if our child wants to be uh, a musician and we tiger parent that that child and say no you need to be be a doctor and that child makes a lot of money and is a successful doctor and owns a great house but has this passion that's never been fulfilled never been able to experience the music part there's you know they're they're satisfied to some degree but are they are they happy i don't know that's that's kind of what we we look at in secrets of safety net parenting the 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 parents that i interviewed for this they allow their children to to um, explore their passions and that's kind of where the happiness part starts is finding your child's passion and once your child once your child you can identify their passion you give them opportunities to explore that and and it goes from there well let's talk about that how do you begin to deal with the child or, or you know steer them in the direction of finding their passions because there's going to be a little bit. I mean, certainly you could step back and just let them find their own, but they probably need a little bit of guidance and if yeah, they don't, yeah. you know, and a little bit of support or a lot of support along the way to actually develop those passions. And it really depends on on the age also uh, of the children of the child. The um, the interesting thing is now that there's so many screens involved in the world, the kids are you know on their iPads and their iPhones and and uh, computers. Um, a lot of kids they they, they feel their passion is is doing something, playing with apps or playing games. Um, but when, when you're driving your kid to soccer practice or you're sitting down at the dinner table or you're listening to what their teacher says or their friends say about them, very often what they're talking about is their passions. And um, it's, so we're looking at what, what are they into? What are they like? What are, I, I try to distinguish between passions and strengths because strengths are what they're good at but passions are what they really are are drawn to, and um, so it's really it, it's it's crucial for us to be able to to help them identify those, and then once they've identified them, then we can we can give them opportunities to help strengthen them and be, make have these passions become strengths. You know, that reminds me of when I took my oldest one to college. I guess about five years ago now, and I sat in on a, a meeting that was with the president of the college, Bard. And very interesting guy. They had a whole bunch of other other parents in there. And one woman stands up and she says, you know, I, I'm really worried my son doesn't have a major. And the, the uh, president of the college looks at her and says, you know, I really like it when kids come in without a major. Because when they come in with a major, that's usually something that everybody else has told them that they're good at. Yeah. But it's not what they actually want to do. And I thought that was such an insightful comment and it's you're you're kind of echoing that in a way that the you know the things that they that they do well are not necessarily the things that they like and the, the, the wonderful thing about college is also that is that there's a smorgasbord of of, uh, of choices so uh, you might a child may start college and think okay, this is the direction I want to go but then go oh I didn't know that was an option oh look at that and I love the fact that you know your first couple of years you have the opportunity to, to, to switch majors because you don't necessarily know I mean I've got a 15-year-old, and she's telling me, 
I need to know what I'm going to do in college. I said, no, you, you really don't. She goes, but I, I need to be able to, to fill out my applications. I mean, she's, you know, she's two years away from that. I need to fill out my applications so I can, so I can make sure that I, I tell them the right things. And I'm like, you know what? It's okay to have an idea, write it out. But once you get in there, I mean, that's, that's when the real fun begins. Well, that raises a whole other issue, which is about money. Because college, unless you're going to a state school, unless you're going to community college, is really, really expensive. Yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you, I, I had this, a similar kind of a thought. I really wanted my daughter to go there and, and develop whatever she wanted to develop, her strength, her, her passions. But I'll tell you, like, if you don't know what you want to do, then why don't you discover yourself at a community college where right. it's, it's a, a tenth of the price rather than spend two years and, and maybe turn it into a five-year education uh, you know, a, a very expensive time. And so that there's a certain amount of reality that has to creep into these discussions. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, and, and it, it, you have to, there's a lot, of, there's a lot that goes on because, you know, you have, you have families of means, you have families uh, that struggle. Um, but, but that's one of the things we, I talk about in, in the book also is that, um, that we all have obstacles. I mean, all adults, all children, there are obstacles that we have, and as a, as parents, we have to recognize the obstacles we have and our children's have. But we also have to make sure we we don't use those as excuses for why our children can't be successful. So, for instance, I was I was raised by a single mom. She was 18 years old when she had me, and we we struggled financially. Um, government assistance. There was actually dump, dumpster diving at times. But but my but my mom worked really, really hard also. She worked uh, multiple jobs and did her very best. And I was never allowed to use the fact that she was young and that she was single, I had no dad in the house, that we didn't have money. I was never allowed to use those as excuses for why I couldn't be successful in school or sports or whatever it was. I, maybe there was an, uh, an obstacle that I, I had to come across, I had to, had to somehow get over, but... Um, but my mom would not allow those to be excuses, and that's that's a critical 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 point because once we voice as parents that our child can't for this reason or that reason, they embody that. Right. That's that's a pretty difficult thing to have to deal with. Is it the the, the messages? We actually did an interview about that uh, about changing the narratives that you have that this can be very powerful. Talking with Leon Scott Baxter, who's the author of Secrets of Safety Net Parenting, Raising Happy and Successful Children, The Common Denominator. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Leon, get into some of the, the steps about establishing safety net parenting and a lot more. I'm Armin Brott, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Okay, forest animals, kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow, have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. River, how's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. I love it. Uh, Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Uh, he's late every morning. Okay. Squirrel. The forest has been preparing just for you. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to 
Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Leon Scott Baxter, who's the author of Secrets of Safety Net Parenting, Raising Happy and Successful Children, the Common Denominator. And we just mentioned, just talking a little bit, I guess, just right before the break about the whole idea of, of the narratives that people are telling themselves. And there's a story that you tell in the book, which I thought was a very sweet one in a way when you were teaching. I think this is, you said it was your first year teaching. You had a, a boy who came to you and you wanted him to read something and he couldn't read and he refused even to try and it was so clear that he had it's not that he could he couldn't read anyway but I mean he had kind of convinced himself which just made the process of learning something as basic as reading that we all take for granted uh, a real problem it was interesting it was my first year teaching and um, he was on my list of students and I saw that he had special needs and to be honest with you I was it was I was I was terrified my first year in the classroom. Um, you know, how am I going to do? And I saw this kid with special needs, and he didn't show up the first the first day of school, and I and I felt relieved. I was thinking, okay, because I, I I have to deal with my class and 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 to do something special and different. You know, I, I, can I handle that? And he didn't show up for the first two months, and I got in a rhythm with my class. And then one day he walked in. This young man, he had. Um, he was he was very delayed, and his his mom had been had taken drugs while while she was pregnant, and um, he his his teacher from the year before had I said well what do you what do you do with him and she said well I have a box of, of toys he plays with, and I, I was a third grade teacher at the time, and she said so when we all worked I gave him the box of toys. Well, he came to my class, and I said okay well let me I'm going to assess this young man. So I said here sit down and let's see how how you read. And he goes I I, I can't read. I said well. I, Sure, it's difficult. It might be difficult, but give it a shot. He looked at me and said, "I can't read," and I, I, I just, I can't read. And he obviously had heard that so many times that he had, he believed it. Now he really did have difficulty reading, but there was no way he was going to try. And, um, and you know, his teacher from the year before, you know, she didn't put him in with the rest of the, the kids. She basically, she didn't say it with words, but through her actions, she was saying. You can't do this. You can't do what these other kids are doing. And so he he embodied that. And so um, when he came to my class, you know, I just I tried to figure out ways to make it so that you know all the kids were writing out the steps to do something. So I gave him pictures and I said, "You order these steps for me." And then you know we we took him to a kindergarten first grade teacher who gave him some extra help in reading. And I bought him a book and he memorized the book. By the end of the year, it was one of the most wonderful things. One of the most wonderful things. I, second to last day of school, I find this really rudimentary picture on my desk, and I can tell it's his. It's got stars and a big happy face, and I look up, and he's looking at me, and I call him over. I said, did you draw this? He said, yes. I said, how come? He said, because you taught me to be a reader. And the thing is, you know, he got better. He wasn't a great reader by any means, but what happened is he had belief in himself. And that's a huge part of, you know, as a teacher and as a parent, is that we have to instill belief in our children um, so that they can carry that confidence, and confidence leads to success. Now, how do you tread the line between pushing and nudging? Because you talk about nudge, don't push, and you know, meaning push being you steer the child where you want them to go and nudging kind of being or nudging kind of being helping them to find something. Yeah, I try to, first off, to, to distinguish between that, the, between passions, uh, like maybe hobbies and, and sports, versus um, responsibilities. Responsibilities are like schoolwork, 
uh, chores around the house, if they have a part-time job, those those they need to do. It's not like oh, I don't you know I, I don't feel like doing my chores today, and we give them the freedom. You know, safety net parents say, hey, this is you draw the line. It's time to do your chores. It's time to do your homework. Go to work. You know, whatever it is. So, um, but but we're looking at, at at the passion side of that, and what we what tiger moms or tiger parents do is they find what their their child they think their child will be successful at and they and they push them there even if the child doesn't feel that and they're not, not don't necessarily want to do it but maybe they're good at it maybe it's a strength and it's not a passion and the tiger mom says well it, once you're good at it you'll you'll love it where um and so what what I'm trying to what I'm trying to instill is that that once we find a child that has a passion for, let's say, soccer, and they love soccer, and they, they're doing it, and then one day they get up and they go, I don't feel like going to soccer today. We know that that's a passion of theirs. They may, they may need a nudge to get up. You know what? You need to, you need to be responsible for your, for your team. I'm sorry you're feeling this today, but you need, to, you, know, you need to get out there and be part of the team. That's the nudge I'm talking about. If, they're, if they hate soccer, they, but, and, and you say, you need to play soccer, because you're good at it, that's the push. So I've tried to distinguish between like a nudge is like to kind of remind them what they what they really love, what their passion is, to get their their to get their juices flowing again. Whereas a push is is you know, kind of like dragging them to to do something that they don't like because we think it's going to be the best for them. One of the things you talk about in the book is that you're not their friend, and that's something I, I find constantly. I mean, I, I struggle with that, I think, a little bit myself. Of course, my kids are older, so it's not as much of an issue, but I know I've seen a lot of people who we don't we, we work hard and we don't get to see our kids as much as we'd like to, so we want to kind of be cool and, and have them like us that way and everything should be fine. And, and what happens is you end up blurring lines and... Part of uh, what you're saying, safety and parenting, is you got to be the the wall in a way. Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it a lot as as a, as a teacher, and a lot of parents are concerned that their their child's not going to like them. Well, I'll tell you this: if you're if you're a good parent, they're going to love you. I mean, if you if you they're gonna, even if you're a bad parent and not not such a strong parent, they're still going to love you. So that's that's a given. Your, your child's going to love you. We're, our job as parents is to prepare them for life. It's not to be their best friend. You know, I want my child to think I'm cool and want my child to hang out with me and laugh with me, but that's not my first job. You know, I brought, I, I brought this child into the world. I've got to do my job to make sure this child's ready when she, when she leaves my home. And so that means I've got to, I've got to let, make sure that my daughters both know what's expected of them what the consequences are, and the hardest part, and this is hard for me also, is the follow-through. Because we have to follow through with, our, with the consequences so the child knows the boundaries. Because once they know the boundaries and they know where their, their, their spaces that they can live in, then they can feel comfortable. But when we, like you said, we blur that line and they don't know what their boundaries are, then they're always pushing them and trying to figure out where they're going to go. I, I noticed that as, um, as a teacher, it's much easier for me to, to do this because um, my students don't know the same buttons to push that my, my daughters do. And so when I, you know, I, I, I say, hey, you broke this rule, this is the consequence. They can say, but I didn't know, and I just kind of, I'm like a broken record. Sorry, this is the rule, I'm sorry. My emotion's out of it, there's no, I'm not angry 
when I'm at home, my, my daughters kind of know what the, the buttons to push, and so I've got to remind myself, just be a broken record. Sorry, I know that you're not happy with this, but these are the rules. You know the consequences, and I keep repeating myself. And eventually, my daughters realize, well, you know what? If I break the next rule, it's going to happen again. So it's kind of hard at first to do that kind of thing, but when you do it a couple of times, it makes life easier for everybody. And I guess the, the other part of this, in a way, is to get some little bit of perspective about not living your life through the kids. I think that, that there's so much disappointment that can come in or so much. I mean, that's part of the reason I think why people push their kids, again, using your definition of pushing instead of nudging, because they missed out on something because they want the kids to do something that they didn't have a chance to do or that they, they feel somehow that their child being a success in a particular area is going to reflect on them positively. And I, I think that's part of... Uh what the, the pride part of parenting is, you know, we want our children to do well, and when they do, it's natural for us to say, that's, our, that's my kid, you know, and I had a hand in that. And so, um, but, but I, I think that's also kind of the, the tiger parent part of, of parenting that I'm sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes I, 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 fall, I fall victim to that. And my daughter, my oldest daughter, she has a, a YouTube channel, which is wildly successful, and she's got like 100,000 subscribers, and she, she teaches girls how to do makeup. And, and I told her, hey, you know, you should, we should contact one of the big uh, makeup companies and see if we can have a line of makeup for you. you know, and for me, this makes sense. It's perfect. And she's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not feeling it. And, I, and I'm <laughs> like, well, you don't have to worry about making the makeup. You know, just, we'll just, you have 100,000 people who will follow you. You have your audience already. You know, it's a, it'll be a small line. It might work out. No, I don't. I don't want to. I don't think so. And for me, it was so hard not to still write that letter off to CoverGirl and Maybelline, and 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 see what would happen. Because to me, I, I'm like, I know this will work, and, and and I'll be and I'll be so proud of her. And how sure. how can she not want this? But I had to tell myself, this is not really what she wants. This is not a job for her. This is not her schoolwork. This is not her chores. This is what she, she's passionate about, and I can't push what I think would be successful onto her. So I had exactly. to pull back. And, that, and that's, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm by far, I'm not a perfect parent. And I suffer from, I've got my helicopter um, dad days, and I've got my tiger dad days that I have to kind of rein back. So I still work on this. But, um, but you've got to, once you understand what safety net parenting is, then you've got to be conscious about, about implementing it. Leon Baxter is the author of Secrets of Safety Net Parenting, Raising Happy and Successful Children, The Common Denominator. Leon, thanks for joining us. Great to have you again. Thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate uh, talking to you anytime, Armin. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.